While we're waiting, let's go ahead and open the Bible. I want to go to Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. We'll conclude our study in Revelation today for the time being. And uh, who's preaching next week? And what is it on? Oh, okay. We're going to revisit the evils of abortion. Something that most pastors around this country have are too cowardly to even speak about. Even those that claim to be pro-life. Make no mistake, the pro-life industry in America depends upon abortion just as much as the pro-choice industry. If it didn't, they'd be screaming for abolition of abortion in this country, but they never are. So don't be so foolish as to think that most in pro-life want the end of abortion. They don't. Follow the money. That doesn't mean many people who work for these organizations or who speak out against abortion are truly opposed to it, but don't, don't fall prey to these organizations and these political action groups. It's always about the money. Politics is the problem, and we need deliverance from it, both in this country and in the world. And that's what we've been talking about here is deliverance from the curse of sin and the curse of politics and politicians. And that's coming with the king. To the king we sung this morning. So let's open up. I'm just going to go ahead and get started um, so we have plenty of time. Open up to Daniel chapter 9. I'm going to start at verse 24. I finished up last week. We finished up matters of chronology. I hope gave you a better understanding of how we date things and where the millennium fits into God's plan and purpose for the world as a millennium of rest, of Sabbath rest for the earth. Uh, we looked at a few snapshots from the Old Testament about life in the millennium or the coming kingdom when God showed Israel pictures of distant hope. He did it to make them ashamed that they might humble themselves and return to Him. For us as believers, these pictures of distant hope should likewise humble us and draw us closer to our Lord as we put our trust in Him and not presidents and kings and politicians. But we talked about the uh, millennial kingdom as a literal kingdom, not some deep, dark spiritual secret that was fulfilled in A.D. 70. It's a literal coming kingdom. It'll be a theocracy where God will rule in and through a leader He elects, not one that's elected by the people. This theocracy will have Jesus Christ as the king over the whole earth. Israel is the chief nation, the world's only superpower. Today, that's the United States, or Babylon, as I like to say. Or, But in that day, it'll be Israel. Tiny little Israel will be the world's superpower. We'll see the northern and southern kingdoms united back together again. We'll see a co-regency where David himself will have a place the Old Testament saints, the 144,000, the apostles and prophets will all have special roles in this millennial government, in this government of a superpower based in the land of Israel. 
And with these things in mind where we wrapped up last week, I just want to revisit a very important prophecy in Daniel chapter 9 that guides all of these things. Because the same people who claim that all this millennium and rule and reign is not literal, that God has forsaken Israel and that... uh, um, you know, all these things are fulfilled in the church and the church is the replacement and all these secrets were fulfilled in the first century of the church. They're the same folks that would look at this prophecy and ignore what is very obvious in the context. This is one of the most important prophecies in the Old Testament to prove that Jesus is the Messiah and also to give us an understanding of God's timeline for the nation of Israel. We talked about this passage in detail several years ago in this study. And if you go to the website and scroll back or enter in the search bar 70 weeks, you'll find those messages. It was a series of five messages. And I've used those before in our Team Yeshua's. I don't think we went into that too deeply this year. But it's a very important prophecy. And I just want to review it. Daniel, remember, was reflecting on the end of this 70-year period of captivity. Jeremiah told the people that God was going to send them into captivity for 70 years so the land could enjoy its Sabbath. Daniel, who was taken captive to Babylon in 605 B.C. with the first captives, he made his way up the ladder in the politics of Babylon. He knew that it had been about 70 years since these things had started to happen, and he believed that if the words of Jeremiah were true, then God uh, would be wrapping up uh, the 70-year captivity. And as Daniel was praying and confessing his sins and the sins of the people, remember, Gabriel came to him and said, Look, I don't want you to worry about this 70 years of captivity. I've got something else I want to show you. Let's talk 70 weeks. Let's don't worry about something in the short term because God has a plan and a purpose for Israel to accomplish everything and that's over a period of 70 weeks and so the angel gives Daniel a prophecy that spans the entire future of Israel until God is done performing the promises and the things he had purposed for her as a nation. Beginning in verse 24 Okay, your people went captive for 70 years. I'm not finished, God, the angel says. 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and thy holy city. In other words, God says, I have purposed 70 weeks to do something with your people, the Jews, not the Gentile church, and with your holy city, the city Daniel was praying for, Jerusalem, literal. Now that word in Hebrew, weeks, It actually translates 77s are determined upon thy people. In the English language, we have a word that connotes the number seven. Other than seven, it's weeks. A week is seven. And so that's why it's translated that way because the word week is always associated with a period of seven. Okay? These 70 weeks stand for years, just like they did in Ezekiel's prophecy, chapter 4. Seventy-sevens, or in other, in other words, 490 years are determined upon the Jewish people and the city of Jerusalem to accomplish 
what's listed in the rest of the verse, six very specific things. God told Daniel, I'm going to take a 490-year period moving forward. It's going to have a specific starting point, and it's going to have a specific ending point. And at the end of this period, that's when I'm going to accomplish in full these things that you're hoping for now. To finish the transgression, in other words, to bring an end to Israel's rebellion and sin against God, to make an end of sins, to make an end of Israel's sin, to make reconciliation for iniquity, in other words, to restore Israel to her, between her and her God, to restore the divorced wife, to bring in everlasting righteousness. In other words, to fulfill the Davidic covenant and establish a righteous kingdom. To seal up the vision and prophecy. In other words, to fulfill all of these things that I've spoken through the prophets. And to anoint the most holy. That is the Messiah. To anoint him just as God prophesied he would do there in Psalm 2. There's going to be a 490 year period with a specific beginning, a specific end, and at the end, I will have accomplished these things. These things have never been accomplished in Israel or in Jerusalem. Israel has rebelled against God since the day she returned from Babylon. You have Ezra and Nehemiah and the prophets after Babylon rebuking the people for their sin and their foolishness and their rebellion. Israel rejected the Messiah. She's been scattered to the ends of the earth. And even today, though she be gathered back in the land, she's been gathered back in a state of unbelief. So these things have not been fulfilled. And yet there are those who teach that this prophecy was fulfilled when Christ rose from the dead. How is that possible? You have to deny that this is talking about the Jews and the city of Jerusalem to come to that conclusion. And you can come to those conclusions when you rip Scripture out of context. What many that teach replacement theology and covenant theology do. We reject those things in this body. We believe that what we read is what it says. What it says is what it means. And when the plain sense is common sense, there is no other sense. So God has a plan for Israel spoken long ago in the days of Daniel that will sum up all of these things and usher in the millennium. When the millennium is ushered in, these things will have been accomplished for God and His chosen people, Israel. Now notice, know therefore, the angel tells Daniel, he's going to tell him when this prophecy starts, when that clock starts ticking. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem... Unto Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two or sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times or troublous times. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the Prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And the end thereof shall be with a flood. So in this prophecy, we have three periods that comprise 70. We have a period of seven weeks, a period of 62 weeks, and a period of one week that gives us 70 weeks 
or 490 years. So in other words, 49 years, uh, 7 years, and 62 times 7, 400 and, uh, 434. I don't have the math mind that my dad does. I did, uh, I did get straight A's in AP calculus in high school, though. <laughs> Jamie can run to me in the office when they get into the hard stuff, and I can usually dig it out of my mind. I don't remember what we did last week, but uh, something crazy with, with algebra. But never really practically put that to use. So. Um, but anyway, we've got three periods. And the angel says that this would begin when a commandment was given to restore and build Jerusalem. Not a commandment to restore and build the temple. That was given by Cyrus. But when there was a specific commandment to rebuild the city, we have that recorded in the Old Testament. Who did the king of Persia give the commandment to to go back and rebuild Jerusalem? Nehemiah. And it was most likely on the day of Passover in 454 B.C. Now, conservative commentators often talk about this starting in 445 B.C., and then they've got to calculate the years in some kind of weird prophetic year that doesn't exist. But if you look at history, and we talked about this a long time ago, there was a very famous military conflict in history that turned out a way it shouldn't have. If you want to see God's providence clearly in human history, look at military conflicts, because this often reveals very clearly God's providence. And it harkens back to the story of the Spartans in Greece and the 300 that held back the Persian army and an incredible navy battle at Salamis where the Greeks defeated the Persians and the Persian emperor or the Persian king was humiliated and he essentially quit. I'm done with politics. And he retired and hid himself up in a mountain fortress and spent the last of his days partying. And so his son had to step up to the plate and start governing That son was the one that told Nehemiah in his 20th year, dating from when he had to start governing, that he could go back and rebuild the city. So starting from 454 B.C., God's prophetic clock starts ticking. We have three periods, a period of seven weeks, a period of 62. We're told that after the 62-week period, which is after these first two, that uh, it would end with what, what is called Messiah the Prince. From this commandment, Until Messiah the Prince would be 483 years or 69 weeks. Okay? After the 62, which is after the second period. Messiah the Prince. 483 years after this commandment was given brings us to 30 AD. There was one time in Christ's ministry, one event... And one event only where the people of Israel conglomerately that were gathered there that day hailed him as the Messiah. When was that? Palm Sunday. And they changed their mind. Within a week, they're calling for his crucifixion. And this was filled exactly. And then we're told that two events would happen after 69 weeks. Messiah would be cut off. And... The people of the prince that would come, the one we're going to see in the last period, would destroy the city and the sanctuary. Messiah was cut off in AD 30. The temple and the sanctuary were destroyed by the people of the future Antichrist in AD 70. 
So after this, those two events happened, they filled and fit the chronology exactly in terms of solar years. Jesus Christ was hailed as the prince 69 weeks of years after the commandment went out. And then the very next day in terms of calendar years, he was cut off, just like the prophet said, crucified, rejected by the nation. And then 40 years later, Judah, uh, 40, year, uh, 40 days on the left side, Ezekiel, the city was cut off. Then we're told the end thereof will be with a flood, verse 26, and unto the end of the war, desolations are determined. So there, the temple and the city are destroyed, and then there's this long period, unto the end. When you see that phrase in Daniel, unto the end, the prophet is telescoping from one period of time to the end. And so between the 69th and 70th week, we have a long period of time, a gap. We are in that gap right now. It includes the church age. But how do we know God's prophetic clock for Israel, which has come to a stop, to accommodate God's plan and purpose for the church, how do we know when it starts ticking again? Very clearly, just like we know when it began ticking, the prophet gets details. What about that last week, that period of seven years that's unfulfilled? When's it going to start ticking? Verse 27, And he, who is he, this pronoun harkens back to the prince that shall come, the nearest antecedent, basic grammar, and he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. So we have this Antichrist who makes a treaty with Israel. That starts that last or that 70th week. We know the 70th week as the time of Jacob's trouble, Jeremiah 30. We know it as the tribulation in the New Testament. And in the midst of that week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. So this people of this prince, we know from the greater context of Daniel as Antichrist, will make a covenant with Israel. And halfway in the middle of the week, three and a half years later, he's going to cause sacrifices and oblations to cease. That means there's a temple in Jerusalem. And he's going to go profane it and cause it to stop. He is going to betray the people of Israel, the ultimate traitor. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate even until the consummation. And that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. So this last week, the 70th week of Daniel, hasn't started. It starts when Antichrist signs a treaty. Sometime, I believe, after the rapture of the church, and it ends seven years later when Christ returns to set up his kingdom, therefore fulfilling all of these things. I like this prophecy when witnessing to Jewish people because it makes it very clear. Nobody questions that the temple was destroyed in AD 70. Messiah had to come and be cut off before that. So if Jesus is not the Messiah, you can't trust any of your Old Testament. But we're not, we won't be here for this. We will return with the Lord to put an end to it. But those days are coming. And make no mistake, it doesn't come to pass. Usually it never comes to pass as men think it will. But it's always exactly like God said it will. 
you know, we like to think about, you know, this revived Roman Empire and the, and the European Union and all that. And that's kind of what's been taught all these years. I'm not so sure that's accurate. But whatever comes to pass, it will be exactly what God says will come to pass. Who would be, based upon history, who would be the ultimate traitor or betrayer of Israel? More so than any nation in Europe. Because the nations of Europe have never been a friend to Israel. Who would be the ultimate traitor? The United States. The United States is more of a political whore than any other nation in this world. We might have a president that's not our enemy, and I praise God for that. We might see some things changing from what it was in the Obama years. I'm thanking God for that. But I don't trust that what this nation is going to become is something great. I, I, I believe it's going to be part of all this mess. And when you look and you read about the rise and fall of the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire never did cease to exist. We are that empire revived today, that world superpower. And it could be that these things come to pass because our own, one of our own presidents rises to power. I don't know the answers to these things, but God's prophecies are always fulfilled literally and it's specifically on time as this prophecy demonstrates. So as we talk about these things, remember that the millennium is a time in, when, in which these things are fulfilled. This is God keeping His Word. So if God doesn't do it, then can we trust him? But we can trust him because he's proven himself time and time again. These things should give us hope. I'm going to make sure that this thing is continuing to record. Yes, it is. So these six things will be fulfilled and therefore Israel will be the chief of nations, the world's superpower during this time. Her prophets, the apostles, David himself will have special places. The 144,000 witnesses of Revelation 7 will have a special place. That motivates us to go out and share with especially young Jewish people these days. They may not get saved and come into the church, but maybe they'll be sealed and used by God during the tribulation. Remember, the Jews are going to... They started the Great Commission, they're going to finish it. And... Those tribulation saints will be the last great revival. Just as God wrought a revival during the hard days of our civil war here in America, something the history books don't talk about. And the, 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 the greatest part of that revival wasn't in the Union camps, it was in the, concert, the Confederate camps. Even in horrible days, God still does something. He's going to do it one day. Maybe He'll do it in this nation before He's finished with us. But there will also be special roles for the church and for the tribulation saints in the millennium. Let's look at a couple of passages of Scripture this morning. Daniel 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, and Jason Philippians 3, verse 21. Shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. 
When Christ appears with His saints to set up His kingdom, it says that we, the believers, will be like Him. We will have resurrection bodies just like His. So we will be sanctified. We will be in our resurrection bodies immortal during this time of the millennial reign. Philippians 3.21. If we want to know what our resurrection body will be like, Philippians is pretty clear here. At the rapture is when the believers, the dead in Christ first, and we which were alive and rem- are alive and remain will be raptured out and given a new body. Just like those saints that got up out of the grave when Christ was crucified and rose from the dead, the first fruits. We'll be given a new body, and we know that that body will be fashioned like our Lord's resurrection body. That's what we have to look forward to, putting off this old shell and being clothed in the resurrection body like unto our Lord. What were some things that our Lord was able to do in His resurrection body? Well, He was able to go through walls because when He appeared to His disciples, the, the, the eyewitness writer of the gospel was very clear that the doors were shut. He was able to travel long distances in an instant. He ate and He drank. He wasn't flesh and blood. A body of flesh and blood is tainted by sins, but He was flesh and bones. These things give us clues about what awaits and we will serve our Lord and His kingdom with our resurrection bodies. The church will be administrators, governors, judges, possessing judicial and executive authority, particularly over the Gentile nations with access to all governmental offices and residences in the New Jerusalem. Top clearance for the church immortal and sanctified in our Messiah's kingdom. The church will be the Lamb's wife. The princess. She is the new Jerusalem. And she'll reside there and yet have governmental authority over the Gentile nations that survive and enter into that kingdom. Jesus Christ tells parables that speak of these things. One in particular is in Luke chapter 19... Jesus talks about, in verse 12, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. That's the Messiah. He goes into a far country, back to heaven to receive a kingdom, and he's going to come back. And he called his ten servants and delivered them ten pounds and said unto them, Occupy until I come. That's really our job as the church in this life, is to occupy until our Lord comes. Are we doing that? Are we occupying or are we distracted by the world? Are we occupying or are we in despair in these dark days? Occupy till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a message after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. That was the attitude of Israel about her Messiah. And it came to pass that when he was returned, having received the kingdom, then he commanded these servants to be called unto him to whom he had given the money. To whom 
this king had given stewardship, he called them to give account that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained ten pounds. And he said unto him, Well, thou good servant, because thou hast been faithful in very little, have thou authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, thy pound has gained five pounds. And he said, Likewise to him, be thou also over five cities. And another came, saying, Lord, behold, here is thy pound, which I have kept laid up in a napkin. For I feared thee, because thou art an austere man. Thou takest up, thou layest not down, and reapest thou that thou didst not sow. Isn't this a picture of a superstitious, religious Christian, fearful of his Lord in such a way that he does nothing? He hides and sits upon what God has given him out of superstitious fear. And he saith unto him, Out of thine own mouth will I judge thee, thou wicked servant. Thou knewest that I was an austere man, taking up that I laid down, and reaping that I did not. So wherefore, then thou gavest not thou my money unto the bank, that at my coming I might have required mine own with usury. In other words, if these things are true, if I'm austere and I like to gain, why didn't you take this pound and put it in the bank so I can at least collect interest? You wicked servant. You hypocrite, you judge yourself with the words of your own mouth. Isn't that a picture of most of churchianity who failed to occupy? And he said unto them that stood by, Take from him the pound and give it to him that hath ten pounds. And they said unto him, Lord, he already has ten pounds. But I say unto you that unto every one which hath shall be given, and from him that hath not, even that he hath shall be taken away from him. And then he goes on to talk about the enemies of, of that Lord, what will happen to them. But in other words, what we see here is those who were told to occupy, those that did faithfully are then given governing authority over cities, over entities. This is a picture of what weights our role in the millennium. And I believe that it will be in proportion to our faithfulness to occupy during the time we have in this life. It will reflect our reward. Those that were faithful will have authority over more than those who were not. But there will be a place of governing authority, judicial authority, particularly over Gentile nations for the church. There's also a role for the tribulation saints. Those are those Gentiles that come to faith during the tribulation apart from the indwelling Holy Spirit because of the preaching of the 144,000 witnesses. They are the ones who pay for their decision with their lives and who around that altar of incense in heaven cry out to God to avenge their blood, which he does. These we studied and saw in Revelation 7 will have a special place, executive authority. They will be the Messiah's cabinet, his personal staff, his deep state per se. But unlike our nation, our president's cabinet, our deep state, most of whom were seditious traitors that deserve to be drugged in the streets by the people and beat to death. That's my opinion, one man's opinion. And as a preacher, I can stand in this pulpit and share it, and I really don't care what anybody else thinks. Our deep state deserves to be drugged by the people into the streets and beat to death. That is justice. But vengeance is not ours, it's the Lord's. Let Him repay. When He repays like He repaid that wicked, evil man in Iraq a, a week or so ago who didn't even know what hit him. He found out that Muhammad was a liar 
And he found out that there is no 70 virgins or none of that. And in hell he lifts up his eyes being in torment, wishing he could return and warn the fools in his nation's leadership that none of these things are true. But Messiah's deep state, his cabinet will have 100% loyalty to him, access and service in the new Jerusalem. The tribulation saints. We, we see in other places that they will be liaisons between the new Jerusalem and the old Jerusalem or the, or the earthly Jerusalem. Between the new Jerusalem that has no temple and the rebuilt Jerusalem that will have a temple. Special places for God's people. The Bible says that God has in store for those that love Him things that we can't conceive. And yet He reveals them to us. God has a plan and purpose and it extends beyond His coming. And He will reward those who faithfully serve Him. He told His disciples... Those that had left family and friends. He said, no man that follows me and loses family and lands and all of these things won't inherit them tenfold or even a hundredfold in what is to come. God is faithful. He remembers our service toward Him. Even when we ourselves forget. So these groups will have Places of authority, roles in the millennial government. The seat of the millennial government will be the world's only superpower during that time. It will be Israel, specifically the city of Jerusalem. I want to talk a little bit today about Israel and what it's going to look like in the millennium. It's not going to look anything like it does today, uh, but I'm going to actually need something to erase this board with, so I don't see the eraser. Can somebody grab me a... Of just kind of a slightly wet paper towel. Turn to Genesis chapter 15, verse 18. This promise that God made to Abraham, remember when Abraham entered into the land of Canaan about, he was 75 years old, so this was approximately 1921 B.C., almost 4,000 years ago, God gave this promise to Abraham and it sheds light on what Israel is going to look like in the millennial kingdom. I did give you a handout today that might help. Somebody read Genesis 15 verse 18. This is what is called the royal grant, the royal land grant. God granted unto Abraham and his seed a piece of land. We cannot separate the land, the piece of earth, the literal soil from the promise. The covenant theologians and the replacement theologians want to do that, but you can't. It is tied to a piece of dirt. And God made a land grant, a royal grant to Abraham. And that grant is described, this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. I'm not sure if you guys know much about Middle Eastern geography, but you have... um, The land of Israel here, 
And if you go on down, you have uh, the Sinai Peninsula, and then you have Egypt over here. And it goes up, and all the way out here, you've got the Saudi Arabia and Iran and the, the Persian Gulf. You've got the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers. The Euphrates connects up here. So Abraham was, God told him, I'm going to give you land from the river of Egypt to the Euphrates. That's a big chunk of land. Much bigger than the modern state of Israel. Much bigger than what Israel has ever possessed in her history. Now some look at this phrase, the river of Egypt, and say, well, oh, that's that... That's that little wadi. A wadi is a, a stream in Israel that's dry during the summer months, but then it fills up when the rains come. And sometimes these wadis can fill up so quickly that if you're down hiking in the canyon, one minute it's dry, the next minute it's a flash flood. So usually we'll go to Israel in, in, in February or March, and that's a time where it's kind of dangerous to be hiking in the canyons, and they warn you against it. And people have shown videos where these flash floods will just come and spray out the side of a canyon wall and quickly fill up these wadis. There's a, there's a wadi called the Wadi Al-Arish that historically has separated the land of Canaan from Egypt. It, it's the border of Israel and the Sinai Peninsula. Oh, well, Israel possessed that. God's already finished all of this. And in the days of King David, he controlled stuff up to the Euphrates here. But there's a problem because this, there's a river of Egypt referenced many times in the Old Testament when talking about King David and King Solomon and different feasts of the kings. But the Hebrew word that's used is very different than what's used here. When God says the river of Egypt here, He uses a word in Hebrew called Nahar. Nahar means river, but it means a flood, a river that often spills out. A Nahar empties into the sea. It's a major river. Okay? There is a major river known as the river of Egypt that empties out into the sea. What is it called? It's the Nile River. This is talking about the Nile, not some wadi that dries up part of the year. God told Abraham, I'm going to give you the Nile River to the Euphrates. Guess what this includes? It includes the land of Canaan. It includes Goshen, where Israel was enslaved to the Egyptians. It includes Babylon where Israel was taken captive. It includes the lands of the desert wanderings. It includes all in which Israel was, was uh, you, in, in which God dealt with Israel in the Old Testament. This is the royal land grant. So Israel during the millennium will possess these things. She never has possessed it. There was a time during the reigns of David and Solomon when it was close, but it's never even been close since then. What's interesting, turn to 2 Kings. There was one who possessed control over this tract of land, this very tract of land, but it wasn't Israel. Turn to 2 Kings chapter 24, verse 7. I'll read verse 
6. So Jehoiakim slept with his fathers, and Jehoiachin his son reigned in his stead. Okay? This is toward the end of the kingdom of Judah, prior to, prior, just prior to her Babylonian captivity. And the king of Egypt, the one that came through the land during the time of Josiah and went to battle and killed the young king, the king of Egypt came not anymore out of his land for the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the river of Egypt, that is the Nile, the Nahar, to the river Euphrates, all that pertained to the king of Egypt. Nebuchadnezzar possessed the royal grant for a time, and then it fell to the Persians. One day, Israel will possess it. She'll possess the very land that was controlled by those who carried her captive. So we have reference here. The river of Egypt with Nebuchadnezzar is the Nile and the Euphrates. We're told that Israel dwelling in the land much larger than the modern state won't be just a Jewish homeland. It'll be a mixed multitude that lives there. But it won't be a two-state solution like the political leaders of the world today push for. Turn to Ezekiel 47. Somebody read chapter 47, verses 22 and 23. Okay, so we're in the millennial period here. The context, greater context of these last chapters of Ezekiel proves it. God tells us a couple things. That during that time, there will be strangers living in Israel, Gentiles. These strangers will bear children. These are not people in resurrection bodies. These are survivors of the tribulation, survivors of Armageddon that are allowed to come into the land. It's from these scattered around the world, the Gentile nations that survive, that Satan will find a seat of rebellion when he's set loose at the end of the millennium. But Gentile strangers will come into the land and begat children in the land during this time, and they are to be treated as one of you, God says. God's solution for Jews and Gentiles in the land of Israel is not a two-state solution. It's a one-state solution where Jew and Gentile dwell together in peace and where Gentiles are treated as by the, where, where the Jew carries out the golden rule, doing to others as you would have them doing to you under the authority of Messiah. Those that are born in the tribal allotments will be considered part of the tribe. It's a one-state solution. The one-world superpower in the millennium will have a perfect perfectly balanced immigration program that won't yield the horrors that we have in our country today. Messiah's going to fix immigration and it'll be a one-state solution. If you go on to Ezekiel chapter 48 
and I won't read it today, what we get is a very detailed description of the restored land and how it will be divided amongst the tribes. The division of the land to the tribes of Israel won't look like it did in the days of Joshua. It'll be very different. The tribal allotment in Ezekiel 48 is fixed, we're told, from the boundaries of Hamath, which is about 100 miles north of the Syrian capital of Damascus, down to Kadesh. Kadesh Barnea is where Israel did what when she came out of Egypt? Do you remember? You can go there today. It's a Jewish settlement. There's not much there but a hilltop. At Kadesh Barnea, that's where Joshua and Caleb and the spies went into the land. Exiting Egypt. Kadesh Barnea is right here at the Wadi Al-Arish, at the border between Egypt and Israel. She didn't believe God's promises and therefore was cursed to wander the desert for 40 years until that generation had perished. But the tribal allotments are going to extend from Point Hamath all the way down to Kadesh or, or the little river of Egypt. This word here that's used is not Nahar, like the, the promise to Abraham, but Nahash. I mean, uh, that's not right. Nahal. Nahal, which is a river, but it's like a stream, a wadi. It's not a large river. We're told that the tribal allotment will extend within this boundary. There will be areas north and south of that allotment, all the way to the Euphrates, from Hamath, all the way to the Euphrates, and from the Wadi, all the way to the Nile. That will include the Sinai Peninsula. These will be possessions of all the tribes. So each tribe will have a strip of land, and then there will be large chunks north of that and south of that that will be a possession of all the tribes. When we look at the tribes that are given land, the tribe of Dan in Ezekiel is included. Though, remember in Revelation 7, the 144,000 witnesses, 12,000 from each tribe, Dan is missing. Dan had no witnesses. She's missing. But yet restored, the tribe that led Israel into idolatry in the book of Judges is restored in the millennium and has a tribal allotment. So there must be millennial survivors from the tribe of Dan, though these were not part of the 144,000 witnesses. So you have the larger royal land grant that mirrors what Nebuchadnezzar possessed, and you have the land that is allotted to the tribes, a smaller portion of that larger portion that reflects... Something Israel actually did possess in its history. Go back to uh, 1 Kings again. I don't know if this stuff interests you guys or not. It interests me because it shows us how our God is a God of order. And He has a plan and purpose in everything. And even the smallest things foreshadow the plans and purposes that are to come. In 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 65, this is after Solomon built the temple and dedicated it. The Lord appeared to him and Solomon blessed and prayed to God and blessed the temple and it was a time of celebration. And at that time, verse 65, Solomon held a feast 
and all Israel with him, a great congregation. This would have been about 1012 uh, uh, BC. That's when the temple construction began. It took Solomon about seven years uh, uh, to build... Can't remember the exact date. So this would have been after 1012 BC. Uh, um, I know Solomon spent twice as much time building his own house as he did the temple, which was kind of a folly in and of itself that foreshadowed things to come. But Solomon began to build the temple in the fourth year of his reign, and it took some years to do it. This is at the end of that period. So a little bit after 1012 BC, there was a great feast. All Israel, a great congregation from where? From the entering in of Hamath unto the river of Egypt. The word river here is not the word river used for a big river like the Nile, Genesis 15. It's the word river used in Ezekiel 48. Or it's what's used in Ezekiel 48. The, 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 the Nahal. So the people possessed the same tract of land that Ezekiel says will be allotted to the tribes. There were Jewish people in that tract of land. They came from those borders to celebrate the dedication of the temple. From Hamath unto the river of Egypt before the Lord our God, seven days and seven days, even 14 days. So Solomon had a great feast and people came from these boundaries to, to worship the Lord and celebrate the dedication of the temple. This is the area that the tribes will possess in the millennial kingdom. The land that God promised Abraham was never conditional. Unlike the blessings that were promised to Israel if she kept the covenant at Sinai. Remember, God came to Abraham and said, Abraham, I want you to do this. Abraham wasn't sitting around one day, oh Lord, I want to serve you, I promise. I, I want to go to Canaan, send me to Canaan. No, no, no. God appeared to him and God chose him and God told him what to do and he did it. And he made it to him an unconditional promise. However, at Sinai, Israel, the heart of the Sinaitic covenant is Israel. She said, we will do whatever you tell us to do, Lord. We will do it. God said, okay, this is what I want you to do. And she never did it. The heart of the Sinaitic covenant was Israel making a covenant with God. I'd be real leery to make a promise to the Lord in your life. And if you do, you better keep it. Israel didn't. But what God promised to Abraham was unconditional. Israel's blessings were conditioned upon her obedience to a covenant that she boasted she would fulfill. And she suffered consequences for not fulfilling it. However, God's promise to Abraham has always endured. God's promise to preserve him a seed and a land has always endured. It was confirmed to Isaac and Jacob as well. And yet the people of Israel remain. It was unconditional. Never revoked, but yet not possessed. That possession, that fulfillment is coming in the millennial kingdom. I gave you a handout today that kind of is a nice little picture of what the land will look like uh, in the time of the millennium, and this is very laid out in detail in the latter chapters of Ezekiel. There will be seven parallel horizontal sections in the north, starting up at the entering of Hamath. The tribe of Dan will have its most, the most northerly tribal allotment. 
followed by Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Ephraim, Reuben, and Judah. This will extend west to east from the Mediterranean all the way until the river Euphrates. And so it'll kind of look like this. Okay? The tribe of Judah will be unlike the tribe of Judah in the days of... Judah was given land Judea, south of Jerusalem. But in the millennial kingdom, Judah is going to possess Galilee and the valley of Jezreel. She will be north of modern-day Jerusalem. Galilee, the center of our Lord's ministry. Jezreel, where the last battle is fought. Armageddon, that will be Judah's possession. Horizontal strips from the Mediterranean to the Euphrates. Now, south of Judah is a section of land that's called the Holy Oblation. Okay? This strip of land is going to be 50 miles wide. It will extend from the Mediterranean to the river Euphrates. And within this strip of land is a square segment called the Holy Oblation, a square tract of land that's 50 miles on each side. The, in Ezekiel, the measuring unit is the reed. A reed was approximately 10 and a half feet. So when you, uh, when you translate into feet, you're looking at a square tract that's 50 miles high, wide, I mean 50 miles long, 50 miles wide. The entire strip will go from the Mediterranean to the Euphrates. Within this strip is a square tract of land. This square tract of land is divided into three horizontal sections. The top 20 mile, the top 20 mile wide strip, 50 miles long, 20 miles wide, will belong to the Levites during the Millennial Kingdom. The middle, there's a middle strip 20 miles wide that will belong to the priest. It's in this strip that the millennial temple will stand. And then at the bottom, there's a 10-mile wide strip. So basically what you have is a square tract of land, 20, 20 miles wide, 20 miles, 10 miles wide, and then it's 50 miles long. The Levites, the priest, and then the bottom... I knew that was coming. Okay. I guess that was pretty good reflexes for the first part, but no worries. All right. Sorry about that, guys. This bottom strip, 10 miles wide, will be the area for the city, the earthly city of Jerusalem. During the millennium, this earthly city, the city itself will sit in the middle and it's going to be about nine miles square. And then there's going to be a half a mile on each side for the suburbs. And then it's going to extend out to include some other areas. We're told that the new city, based on these Location details in Ezekiel, it will actually be on the site of the present day city, but it will be much larger. It will also include East Jerusalem, which the Muslims claim is their capital. Oh, sorry, no, that will be Israel's capital. 
nine miles square, half a mile on each side outward for suburbs, and then you've got 20 miles on each side east and west for food and crops for the city and for those that serve the city. So this bottom tract of land is 50 miles wide, long. In the middle it will be the city of Jerusalem, nine square miles, half a mile on each side for uh, suburbs, and then these outer portions will be for food and crops. So it won't be like a city today, modern urbanization, modern all of these things. Usually the outer portions of the cities are slums when you travel overseas. Here it's suburbs where spiritually, uh, they're spiritual slums usually, uh, people that don't think they need the Lord. But there won't be any urbanization or mass migration in the millennium. The capital city of Jerusalem will exist as a city should be. With the city, suburbs, and enough food and crops cared for, for the people that serve the city. East and west of this 50-mile square, you can see it here. The Holy Oblation is in the middle of a larger strip of land. East and west will be what is called the prince's portion. Ezekiel 45 and 48 make this clear. This will be a portion, I believe, allotted under the care of David, the prince. David will possess these lands and be steward over them. South of this strip of land that includes the Holy Oblation, the Temple, the city, and the prince's portion are another five parallel horizontal sections you see on the map, including the Dead Sea. Benjamin, Simeon, Issachar, Zebulun, and Gad. And Gad's tribal allotment ends uh, uh, at Kadesh Barnea, at the, at the, at the, the Wadi El Arish, and extends all the way to the Euphrates. South of that, of course, is the Negev Desert, the Sinai Peninsula, all the way to the Nile. That will be the portion of all the tribes. North of Dan will be the, all the way to uh, the um, Euphrates River, including portions of the Levant, Syria, Saudi Arabia. That will be a, a possession of all the tribes, perhaps a national park of some sort. They say when Israel possessed the Sinai, I believe it was in the late 60s, from 67 until whenever they gave it back. When was that, 1981 or something crazy like that? Israel possessed the Sinai Peninsula for about 14 or 15 years. I can't remember the exact dates. And it was a very popular place for camping and backpacking and trekking. And some of the old Israelis that used to trek there as young people talk about how absolutely beautiful and gorgeous this was. But when Muslims and terrorists take over an area, they tend to destroy it. That's what they've done since Muhammad roamed the deserts. Let's don't sugarcoat it. They destroy things. They always have. They always will until they are destroyed. But uh, the Sinai perhaps will be some sort of great national park. The land north of Dan's allotment, Syria and the Levant and Lebanon, used to be very, very beautiful. The Bible speaks about the the waters and, the, and the, the cedar trees and things like that. So perhaps these will be national parks that rival even places today that we associate with beauty. The capital city, as mentioned, will be Jerusalem. Now we're going to see as we get farther into Revelation toward the end, we have some, a very detailed description of what is called the New Jerusalem. There are some differences, some stark differences between the New Jerusalem 
and the Jerusalem that Ezekiel describes in the Millennial Kingdom. So there will be a new Jerusalem and an old Jerusalem. There will be an earthly Jerusalem and a heavenly Jerusalem. There will be a a, a Jerusalem that is the possession of Israel and a Jerusalem that is the possession of the saints, Jews and Gentiles, in the church. Ezekiel 48 describes a Jerusalem, the nine-mile square, everything I shared with you. It also tells us that it will have a wall with three gates on each side. And these gates will be named after the twelve sons of Jacob. This is exactly what's described in Revelation 21. The new Jerusalem has a wall with three gates on each side, and those gates are named after the twelve sons of Jacob. So this Ezekiel's Jerusalem, in his vision, has that in common with the new Jerusalem John sees. However, what Ezekiel sees is about nine miles square, and it has a temple. In fact, the temple is described in detail, in detail. That temple will be located in the prince's portion. It won't be built on the present day site of the temple mount, Mount Moriah. It'll actually be built on the site of Shiloh from the Old Testament. What stood in Shiloh after Joshua and them came into the land for many years? The tabernacle. So Ezekiel describes a city... And he describes a temple. The shape thereof is like the holy place in the old temple. It's got a cubic shape. It's on the site of modern day Jerusalem, but much larger. When we go to Revelation 21, however, what we're going to see is a new Jerusalem that's not nine square miles. It's 1,500 square miles. Its length, its breadth, and its height is approximately the distance from Miami, Florida to New York City. What John describes, I believe, is not cubic. It's a pyramid, a perfect pyramid. It's pinnacle, 1,500 miles high. It's length and it's breadth, 1,500 miles. It descends down from heaven. It's not built up from the ground. And John is very clear that in this Jerusalem, there is no temple. It doesn't need a temple because God and the Lamb are its temple. There's no sun or moon. There's no light needed there from the sun or moon. But yet in Israel, in Jerusalem, in the millennial time, the Bible speaks of the sun shining seven times brighter than it does today. So we have two different Jerusalems. An earthly Jerusalem that will be built and will be the capital of Israel in the millennium. And the heavenly Jerusalem that I believe will descend down from heaven and will be suspended above the atmosphere. It will be suspended above the atmosphere, and the church will have access to this, that regular old people on the planet will not. And we're going to see that that new Jerusalem, God's going to eventually destroy everything on this planet and recreate a new heaven and a new earth. But that new Jerusalem that descends down, it will transcend. It will move from the millennium to the new heaven and the new earth and will endure Forever. So there's a city. Different than the city John describes, but both, one a reflection of the other, will have a place and purpose. The temple will be an important part 
of life in the millennium. When we look at the temple, the millennial temple, Ezekiel goes into a lot of detail. This is covered in chapters 40 through 46 of Ezekiel. Now chapter 47 goes on to describe the physical changes to the land that will happen in the millennium. The geography is going to change radically. And that is kind of um, uh, foreshadowed in this description of the temple as well concerning a body of water that's going to come out of the temple and feed the Mediterranean and the Dead Sea. 47 talks about God's one state solution. And then in chapter 48, we get a detailed description of the tribal allotments and the, the, the city. And so you have the temple, the land, and the city of Jerusalem all described in great detail to those captives there in Babylon. We're told that Ezekiel received this vision of the temple in the 25th year of his captivity. That would have been about 572 B.C. Remember, he was taken captive in 597 B.C. This would be 14 years after the temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. Ezekiel gets a vision. God gives Ezekiel this vision, we are told, right there. We're told why. He's to see it and he's to declare it to the captives. Kind of the same exact reason John was given a vision. He was given it to see it. And declare it to the churches. Israel was given a vision of distant things in the future to see. Egypt, Ezekiel was given a vision of distant things in the future to see and declare to the captives. Why? Hope for the future. In other words, after the temple had been destroyed and Israel sitting captive and wondering and realizing that no, it's not going to be okay. God gives them hope. Regardless of their rebellion and their judgment, he's going to fulfill his promises. And then that distant hope is detailed. We're told in Ezekiel 43 that what God's going to show him, this temple and all these details, are so that they might see and be ashamed of their sins. When God shows us these things that come for those that love him, they ought to convict us. We ought not bury him like the man buried the talent because, oh, we can't understand prophecy. We can't understand these things, so we just won't preach on it. We'll just talk about love and the Good Samaritan. We'll camp out on the Sermon on the Mount and we'll never go anywhere else. No, wrong. These things we ought to talk about so they would convict us and draw us closer to our Lord. But these things were given to Ezekiel to preach to the rebellious people that they might be ashamed. They had failed. They were taken captive, but God would not fail. He would do what he said he was going to do. And one of the things that had been said through the prophets is that the Messiah would build a temple. God said, look, I'm going to do it. I'm not going back on my word like you have. Be patient with me and let me finish this since it's my last Sunday here for a while. There's a good stopping point coming. In the Old Testament, God commanded Israel to build a temple three times. The first time Israel was commanded to build a temple was Solomon's temple. Remember, David wanted to build it, but God said, No, you've been a man of blood, a man of war. Your son will build it. 
In 2 Samuel 7, we have the Davidic covenant that God makes with David. The focus of 2 Samuel 7 is Solomon. David is told that thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels. In other words, I'm making a covenant with you and to your seed that will come out of your own bowels. That's Solomon. God says, I will establish his kingdom and he will build a house for my name. So God is saying, Solomon is going to build me a temple. He goes on to say, if he, con- if he commits iniquity, your seed out of your own bowels, I will chastise him, but I'm not going to take his throne away like I did Saul. So the focus of that scripture in the Davidic covenant is Solomon. I will establish his throne and his kingdom. This temple was built by Solomon. He began to construct it in obedience to the Lord in 1012 B.C., after David in the last days of his life helped assimilate all the supplies, it was dedicated and that temple stood until its destruction by Babylon in 586 B.C. It was considered one of the ancient wonders of the world, an incredibly beautiful edifice that survived. It's a wonder it stood that long when you read the history of the kings of Israel and Judah, but it did. And then it was destroyed. The second temple... God commanded the people to build was Zerubbabel's temple. After the commandment by Cyrus, the king of Persia, Israel returned from captivity to rebuild the temple. She was commanded to rebuild this temple. In Zechariah chapter 4, let's see if I can flip there real quick. Zechariah chapter 4 verse 9 The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands also shall finish it. And thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. The book of Ezra in chapter 1, Isaiah 44. These talk about God's expectation and command that the temple be rebuilt. This is the second temple. Zerubbabel's temple. Approximately 20 B.C., Herod, the king, started a massive remodeling project on that temple. And that temple stood until A.D. 70 when the Romans destroyed it, just like Daniel was told in his 70 weeks prophecy. That temple, the second temple, is the temple that Messiah came to. He drove out the money changers and the people twice, Once at the beginning of his ministry, once at the second. And make no mistake, when we talk about, we act as as if the only people we as Christians are ever to rebuke are religious people. Because Jesus only rebuked the hypocrites and the religious leaders. That's not true. When Jesus went into the temple and used physical force to drive people out, those were not religious leaders selling in the temple. That was the people. That was the wicked people that it made God's house into a den of thieves. Jesus drove them out. He made a a, a cord and drove them out. Turned over the tables. There's a time when we need to speak with such chutzpah and take a stand like our Lord, even to the people. That's what our Lord did. He drove them out. Remember Haggai the prophet came 
when the second temple was being rebuilt. Remember the old men when the foundation was laid wept because they remembered Solomon's temple. The young men rejoiced and the prophet came and said, relax. This second temple is going to surpass the glory of the first temple because in the second temple, the, the desire of all nations is going to come and stand in this temple. He did. If Jesus isn't the Messiah, then God's a liar because the second temple was destroyed in AD 70 and has never been built. The Jews go to the western wall today. That was not the western wall of the temple. That was a western wall, a retaining wall of the grounds of the temple that Herod had built to remodel the edifice. In John chapter 2.20, Jesus is at the temple and he tells the religious leaders, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. He was talking about the temple of his body and they mocked him and they said, what, what are you talking about? This temple's been being worked on for 46 years and it's still not finished and you're going to do it in three days? Well, where did the 46 years come from? The 46 years came from Herod's remodeling project that started in 20, 20 B.C. So we're in about A.D. 26 when the Jews are like, man, they've been working on this thing for 26 years. It's still not finished, and you're going to do it in three days? Jesus' ministry started approximately A.D. 26, just like it all fits together. Now, perhaps he was talking. There's a lesson in Jesus' response there for us. A lot of times we think that honesty means we volunteer all sorts of information. Christians are bad about volunteering information that they need not volunteer. Our Lord was talking about His body. He spoke the truth. He was honest. And He rose that temple up in three days. But He didn't feel the need to explain to the people that He was talking about His body. They thought He was talking about the temple and He was content to let them keep thinking that. Our Lord didn't volunteer information. That's a lesson for us. Sometimes we need to just keep our big mouth shut. But our Lord always knows what He's doing. This second temple was destroyed. But then there's a third temple that Israel is commanded to build. We find this referenced in the Davidic covenant God gave to David as recorded in Chronicles. What's recorded in Samuel focuses on Solomon, an aspect of that covenant. But the focus in Chronicles is on Messiah. Here David is told that God would establish his covenant with thy seed after thee. Not which will come out of your own bowels, Solomon, but which will be of thy sons. Someone on down the line is going to have a son, and that's the seed God is talking about here. That's the Messiah. Of thy sons. We see that David, that Jesus was of the sons of David, not just through Joseph, legally, Matthew chapter 1, but also through Mary, genealogically, or genetically, Luke chapter 3. We, God says in 2 Chronicles 17, 12, that He, the Messiah, shall build me a house. So God purposes for Messiah to build Him a house. I will settle Him in my house and in my kingdom forever. His throne shall be established forever. That's Messiah. If you go to Zechariah 6, we're told in verses 12 and 13, 
And speak unto him, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch. Who's the branch? The Messiah. He shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon his throne, and he shall be a priest upon his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. So the branch will build a temple, and unlike Solomon, he will reign as a priest king. A priest king. We're told in chapter 6, verse 15, that, and they that are far off shall come and build in the temple of the Lord, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me unto you. And this shall come to pass. If you would diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. So Messiah is purposed to build God a temple. He's commanded to. And we're told that people will come from far away to help in this building. This is the millennial temple. Promised and connected to Messiah in the Davidic covenant. That is a temple in which Israel and her anointed is commanded to build. Three temples, three temples only. Solomon's, Zerubbabel's, both of those have been destroyed and a future millennial temple that's described there in Ezekiel. God commands them to build it. And people will come from afar to help them do so. If you remember back in Revelation chapter 11, we talked about another temple in Jerusalem. This is the tribulation temple. John sees it. Remember the street preachers, Moses and Elijah come and preach against this false Antichrist that you put your faith in and, and, and they're killed and the people rejoice. There will be a fourth temple. It's the temple that Israel wants to build today. The tribulation temple. But make no mistake, God has never commanded Israel to build this temple, nor will He. This temple will not be built in obedience to God. It will be built as a seat for Antichrist. And we as Christians should not, though we can rejoice that these things are a sign of the times, we shouldn't support this stuff. Shame on Christian churches that give money to the Temple Institute in Jerusalem so they can build a, a temple for Antichrist. God never commanded Israel to build the temple that will stand as a result of the treaty of Daniel's 70th week. This is the man-made, the way of Jeroboam, who erected his own religious centers. This is the seat of Antichrist. The first and the second temples and the tribulation temple will stand, have stood or will stand on the temple mount, Mount Moriah, where the Al-Aqsa Mosque in the Dome of the Rock is today in Jerusalem. The millennial temple, however, is in the middle of the Holy Oblation. It's connected directly to the city south of there, in the priest portion. And there's a highway connecting it directly to the city called the Way of Holiness, Isaiah chapter 35, verse 8. It'll be approximately a square mile in its size. Much, much larger than Solomon. And much, much larger than the Temple Mount. The Temple Mount's not a square mile. You can see on the right side of this handout I gave you how the temple is connected directly to the city 
It's in the priest's portion. And um, from that temple is a source, we are told, of living water that will go out from the sanctuary. It'll be lined with trees and it'll grow, go out to Jerusalem from the threshold of the door of the temple. In Jerusalem, it's going to fork. half up, It'll go toward the east, toward the Mediterranean Sea, or to the west, I'm sorry, and then it'll go to the east as well and feed the Dead Sea. And the Dead Sea will be healed. It'll be a place for fishermen in the time of the millennium. This stream of living water that goes out from the sanctuary will be about ankle deep. So it starts out as a little stream. 1,500 feet later, it's ankle deep. And a little over a mile, it's going to be deep enough to swim in. And as you can see, it forks in Jerusalem. So here we have a sanctuary much larger than Solomon's, not seated on the Temple Mount, but directly connected to the city by way of the way of holiness and a source of water. And um, this is the Millennial Temple. This is not a temple on the new earth. This is the Millennium. We are told that the portions of land here are bound by the sea. Revelation 21 says in the new heaven and new earth there will be no more sea. And it's also situated according to other localities that are in this present earth that won't be in the new heaven and the new earth. If we study these passages in Ezekiel, we learn that in this millennial temple, there is no Ark of the Covenant. There's no pot of manna. There's no Aaron's rod. There's no tables of the law. There's no cherubim. There's no mercy seat. There's no menorah, showbread, altar of incense, or veil. There's no holy of holies, and there's no Levitical high priest. The Messiah is the high priest. The Levites as a class will perform duties of service in this temple, but not priestly duties. Not priestly duties. This is punishment for their past sins of leading Israel into idolatry. Only the sons of Zadok, the faithful priest, will offer up before the Lord and come into the holy place. So there will be a holy place, not a holy of holies, but the sons of Zadok, not all the priests. There will be a daily morning sacrifice, but no evening sacrifice like the Old Testament Levitical law. There will be burnt offerings, meat offerings, drink offerings, sin offerings, peace offerings, and the trespass offering. The same offerings found in Leviticus 1 through 7. There will be two feasts related to the temple that will be celebrated the Passover, but without the Passover lamb. Jesus fulfilled the Passover lamb, so there's not going to be any lamb, but the feast of the Passover will be observed. From the 14th day of the first month. The Feast of Tabernacles will also be observed from the 15th day of the seventh month. And it is to be observed not just by Israel, but by all the nations. And those who refuse to participate will be punished with a drought and with plagues, we're told in Zechariah 14. Just bear with me, I'm almost finished. What we see is a temple. What we see is those who have roles in this temple. It's got similarities to the Old Testament temple, but very different. It's not on the same location. It's actually 
located where the old tabernacle was put when Israel came into the land under Joshua. It's located on the site of Shiloh, and it's connected directly to the city of Jerusalem and therefore a part of it. Yet the heavenly Jerusalem doesn't have a temple. There will be priestly duties and there will be sacrifices, blood sacrifices. Now, most people can't handle this truth. Most people say, well, we can't believe any of this stuff. There won't be any blood sacrifice in the millennium. It can't be. It can't be. It'll never be. It'll never be. Jesus died on the cross. It can't be. That's the kind of reaction you get from people because they can't handle God's word. Yes, there will be blood sacrifices, whether we understand it or not, and they'll have a purpose. And Ezekiel is very clear as to why there will be blood sacrifices. Why will there be sacrificial ordinances in the millennium? Most people can't handle it. Knee-jerk emotions, just about God's judgment and people going to hell and hell being eternal. We can't believe that. My God won't do it. I'm not concerned about what your God will and won't do. You know, the prophets of Baal acted like their God could do this or that or wouldn't do this or that, and he couldn't even hear them. I don't care what your God will do. I care about the God of the Bible. And chill out. God's Word tells us exactly why. There'll be blood sacrifices. They have a threefold purpose. I'm not going to read the passages because of time, but we find these in Ezekiel 44. First reason why there will be sacrifices in the land, Israel's discipline. Chapter 44, 11, and 12. She never did it right. She never kept the law and the statutes and the judgments right. She will be made to do it, to make reconciliation for the house of Israel. Well, why? If Messiah's made reconciliation, why would the people of Israel in the millennium have to be disciplined? You have to remember what they said to God in Exodus 19. What did they say to God? All that the Lord says to us, we will do. That's what they boasted to Moses. Okay, you spoke your own judgment. You're going to do what you said you're going to do. And Israel will be made to keep her word in the millennium. And part of that includes the sacrifices and the ordinances. And those that used to have a place of power in that, all the Levitical priests, won't. They'll have to do the menial task while the sons of Zadok are rewarded for their faithfulness. So it has a disciplinary function. It's to make Israel do what she said she was going to do. The second purpose is instruction. Ezekiel 44, 23-24 says it will be to teach the nation. These ordinances will teach the nation that never did it right. It will teach the redeemed adulterous wife the difference between the holy and the profane. The difference between clean and unclean. Something Israel has mucked up ever since the days of the Exodus. In chapter 44, verse 24 of Ezekiel, we're told that they will finally do it right. And they will finally keep their word. So discipline, instruction, and then the third reason. Very simple. Provision. The sacrifices will provide food for the priest and a livelihood for those involved in maintaining this holy oblation of land. Discipline, 
instruction and provision. God has a reason why he does everything, whether we understand it or not, or whether we're comfortable with it or not. You could sum it up this way. Why are there blood sacrifices in the millennium? They don't save from sin. They never did. They always pointed to Messiah. They pointed forward to Messiah. In the millennium, they will point backward to Israel's failure and, God's, and, and, and demonstrate God's faithfulness. So in a sense, we could say the sacrificial system in the millennium is a sentence of community service for the people of Israel. It's Israel's community service. God's going to judge them. He has judged them throughout history. He's going to restore them. And that restoration will begin with a period of community service. They're going to serve Him, and they're going to serve Him right. It's Israel's community service for her past sins. That's why there are blood sacrifices in the millennium. So there's a lot of very fascinating details in the Old Testament about this period of time that we have to look forward to. I can't possibly get into all of them. Um, and even the things I summarize today, I could go into much more detail. But I just wanted to encourage you with things in the future, just like the prophet did for the captives when these things were revealed to him. There is a future for the people of God. There is a rest that remains for the people of God who already have rest in the Messiah. And that rest isn't floating around on a cloud playing a harp as a spirit, as a, as a, as a, as a, a white little spirit floating around. You know, Adam and Eve, when they were put in the garden, weren't put there to just sit around and do nothing. They were stewards. They had work to do. There's a time coming when we will have a plan. We will be part of a greater plan and a purpose. And we will see God fulfill all these things. And we will see a kingdom that has never existed since the fall of man, a kingdom that is righteous. What our founding fathers knew could never be accomplished by sinful men. What we have was the next best thing, but it was doomed to fail. They foresaw this. What's coming is not doomed to fail. It's orderly. It's detailed. And it's exciting. So praise the Lord. Remember these things when your mind gets discouraged about what is transpiring today. God, eye hasn't seen nor his ear heard what God has, nor has it entered in the heart of man what God has prepared for those that love him. But it says in the New Testament, yet he's revealed these things to us. He's revealed them to us in his word. And we can find these distant details and have hope if we'll just search for it. When I get back with you, I'm not sure when that'll be. There's one last thing I want to do before we talk about the end of the millennium and finish up chapter 20, the great white throne judgment. I want to look at a few additional Old Testament passages that provide additional details to some of these other things I've shared. We're going to look at Isaiah. So, so let me just give you this assignment. This is something you can do in the interval sometime. The three major Old Testament passages that deal with the millennial kingdom or millennial life are Isaiah chapter 11 and 12. Micah chapter 4. Micah chapter 4 comes before chapter 5 verse 2. And it kind of helps you understand why Herod was so paranoid when the wise men came. And then third, Zechariah chapter 14.
Isaiah 11 and 12, Micah 4, and Zechariah 14. Maybe you could take some time to look over these passages in the interval and, and, and see some more details. There's some interesting things here as well, not only about Israel, but about the earth, about the animal kingdom, about governments, about holidays. There won't be Christmas in the millennium, but there'll be some pretty important holidays uh, that will far surpass all the stuff that we think about for a holiday. So look over those things and we'll get back to it. And then there's a few other details kind of scattered that I think are worthy of visiting. I hope these things have been an encouragement to you. When we pray to our Lord, thy kingdom come. Let's remember what kind of kingdom it is and let's long for it. Um, anyway, let's, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in your word we can find specific details about the distant future. It's not so distant anymore, I believe, but the distant future to give us hope. And may these things be for us as they were meant to be for Israel. May they convict us. May they make us ashamed of our sins and may they draw us to you that we would trust you. For those that hear who aren't saved, may it draw them to you. May they repent of their sins, believe on Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who will raise up this temple in your name one day. Jesus who suffered, died on a cross, was buried and rose from the grave. I pray like was mentioned this morning, Lord, that you'd save everyone in this body who's not saved yet, that we can all be a part of these things. Bless the food we're about to partake in our fellowship, which are blessings we can enjoy until the day you come and begin to bring these things to pass. So until we meet again, Lord, uh, watch over and protect us. And... Uh, May we be found faithful to occupy until you come. In Jesus Christ, the Messiah's name, I pray. Amen. Amen.